If you had to devise a test to determine whether or not a person is a true Christian, what would it look like? What, what would it include? This is what the Apostle John does in chapter 2 of his first letter in the New Testament. These are tests of our faith. They are things that show that we really belong to Christ, that we truly have become one of his children. So if you would make your way to the book of 1 John chapter 2, if you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 1301. The first thing that John says is a test of whether we're truly in the faith or not is obedience. That's probably not a big surprise. Look at 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 3. John writes, And by this we know, that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John begins by dealing with the person who disconnects faith and obedience. Is someone that we would call a libertine. That is, it's the kind of the attitude of, well, okay, I'm saved, God saved me, now I can do anything I want. I mean, after all, I am forgiven, am I not? But John throws out a caution in these verses. And he seems to be saying this, if you habitually practice sin with no thought of any implications, if there's no conviction of the Holy Spirit, you need to examine yourself to see if you are really in the faith. The reason is that a righteous life gives proof that we know God. It's evidence that the Holy Spirit is living inside of us. Boy, look at the church in America today. When I say church, I'm, I'm, I'm even being more general than, than thinking of the church that's made up of, of all believers. But just think about people that are in church every, every week. Um, of Christians, many, or people who, who at least make claims that they know Christ and are following Christ. Eugene Peterson, in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Discipleship in an Instant Society, writes this, There is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations called holiness. Does, does the talk match up with what John is writing about? So what is obedience? Well, let's, let's just camp for a little bit. Let's, let's talk about maybe different ways that we can look at that. First thing I would say is that obedience is the evidence of faith. It shows that we really do have personal faith in Christ. It shows that we're trusting in Him. It's a demonstration that there is faith present. We might also say that obedience is the activity of faith. 
The Apostle James, in his letter in the New Testament, writes this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I think his point is that there will be works if there's genuine faith. It's not the issue of salvation here. It's the evidence of salvation. So obedience is the proper response to the demands of faith. One of the books I have on my bookshelf that I'll often go to, it's by W.E. Vine, and its title is Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, and you can go, it's a good book if you want in your library, you can go look up words in English, and then he will explain how the word is used there in Scripture. But he writes this about obedience. He says, faith is of the heart invisible to men. Obedience is of the conduct and may be observed. When a man obeys God, he gives the only possible evidence that in his heart he believes God. And then this is the key. Obedience suggests an actual and outward result of the inward persuasion of the truth and consequent faith. So we really have to see this connection between faith and obedience. Some, sometimes we say, well, it's just two sides of a coin. No, I think it's more connected than that. You see, faith that pleases God is an obedient faith. Uh, it's not just enough to believe in God. We must believe God. And when you believe God, you obey God. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, we have an interesting positioning of faith, which is believing, and obedience. John writes this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John just weaves these two things together. Let's go at it another way. Uh, we have not just been saved from, we've been saved to. If we focus most of our attention on what we've been saved from, we might miss out on what we've been saved to. So we've been saved from death. We've been saved to life. We've been saved from sin. We've been saved to serve. We've been saved from lawlessness. We've been saved to righteousness. We've been saved from enslavement. We've been saved to freedom. From and to. The Apostle Paul puts it this way when he writes to the Christians in Thessalonica. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. From and to. You see, we have to remember that the gospel has two parts. Christ died for sins. He was raised for life. And this is the basis of spiritual life in us. In Christ, we died to sin, and in Christ, we are raised to life. Christ lives within us. 
He's taken up his residence in our hearts, in our lives, through the Holy Spirit, God himself. And so the indwelling spirit then living in a person gives that person a heart, a desire to obey. Again, we don't just believe in God, we believe God. And we respond to his word in obedience. Jerry Bridges writes, To live by the Spirit is to live both in obedience to and dependence on the Holy Spirit. There's a balance between our wills expressed in obedience and our faith expressed by our dependence. So we link these together, faith and obedience, trust and obedience, belief and obedience. Jesus himself told his disciples, if you love me, you're going to do what? You're going to obey me. You're going to keep my commandments. Here's another thing that we might say about obedience. Grace secures obedience. I'm sorry. Grace secures salvation. Obedience showcases salvation. It puts it on display. It displays the grace of God in our hearts and its progress in our lives. Or we might put it this way. Faith says, I believe. Obedience shows, I believe. Now, John ends this section with these words in verse 6. Whoever says he he abides in me ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. When Queen Victoria resided at Belmore Castle, she sometimes liked to take a walk out in the countryside incognito. And on one occasion, she slipped out by a side gate. She was accompanied only by her faithful servant, John Brown, who followed behind. And along the road, she came on a flock of sheep being driven by a boy who shouted, Get out of the way, you stupid old woman! The queen smiled and said nothing. When her servant came along, he informed the lad that she was the queen. Oh, well, said the boy, she should dress like a queen. If we are a child of God, we should show that that's true. We we should be identified as being true. We might use the old cliche here, talk is cheap. To say that you belong to Christ, but there's no effort to walk as Christ walked, rings hollow. It either demonstrates a very naive view and understanding of what it means to be God's child, or else you're really not believing in Christ. To John, it was that serious. Our lives ought to be in obedience to this one who's called us into a relationship with himself. Now remember, don't get this confused. We don't come to faith through obedience. We come to a relationship with God by believing in the gospel, the good news of Jesus. But then out of that, as we grow in Christ, outflows a life that looks more and more like his and follows his commands. Well, here's a second test that John gives us. It's love. Let's look at it, starting at verse 7. John writes, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him that is in Christ and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. 
Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now John reminds his readers in us that that the commandment that he's giving here to love is nothing new. He's referring back to God's command given long before that time. God told Moses that he was to instruct the people on how they were to live their lives in relation to other people. And included in those words were these, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's an old command. It's been around a long time. But there was newness to it, and that's what Jesus is saying here. And I think that the newness that John is talking about is the fact that we have an example. We have a model that is in Christ. Jesus talked with his disciples about this in the upper room on the night in which he was betrayed. And in John's Gospel, chapter 13, he says this. Jesus says to his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And Jesus demonstrated throughout his entire earthly life just what love was. What does it look like? How does it act? Now, we have to deal with the reality today that we've got all kinds of different definitions of love and usages of love, whether it comes out of Hollywood or out of romantic novels. But love is looked at in so many different ways. It finds expression in so many different forms. Uh, For example, here's a love letter. Dearest Jimmy, no words can express the great unhappiness I've felt since breaking off our engagement. Please say you'll take me back. No one could ever take your place in my heart. So please forgive me. I love you, I love you, I love you. Yours forever, Marie. P.S. And congratulations on winning the lottery. (laughs) The kind of love that we're commanded to show others, to be honest, it's frankly not primarily an emotion. Uh, the, The world says that love is all an emotion. That's all that it is, but that's not true. Love affects emotions. Love creates emotions, it causes emotions. But we ought not to see it primarily as an emotion in relating to other people. Love is an action. Love is a choice that we make. It's a a focused uh, action. It's 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 a choice that we make to act toward another person in a loving way. Well, what does that look like? Well, all you need to do is go to what we call the love chapter of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul gives a great list of things that shows love in action. Just listen to these things. Paul says love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not proud. Love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, 
love rejoices with the truth. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. Can you see the actions in those descriptions? It's not just a feeling that you're having, but it's a decision that you make that leads to certain actions. So love is choosing to act toward that other person in a loving way. What that does is it puts the initiative, the focus on the one loving, not the one being loved. In other words, I can exercise that kind of love toward another person, whether they deserve it or not, whether they've done anything at all that would lead me to express love in that way. Uh, They may be the opposite. That's why Jesus said, love your enemies. Well, how in the world do you do that? You only do it by making a decision that you will act in a loving way toward them. So we don't love because we necessarily find them lovable. We do it because we are obedient to God and as his children and as evidence that we're walking in the light. Now, let me just take a little rabbit trail because there's a couple things I think we need to realize. To love in this way does not mean we throw truth out. See, some, some people say, well, then if I love, then I just, I accept anything. That we, do you do that with our kids? If you really love children, do you let them do anything they want? Without saying anything? No, that would be the opposite of love. And so we we discipline. Even the scripture says that those whom God loves, he disciplines. And so we have to be careful that we don't say, well, love means mushy, mushy love, and truth doesn't matter. We don't do that. There's also a difference between love and trust. If your teenager breaks faith in a uh, curfew or, or, or something else. If someone at work breaks trust, they embezzle, they lie, they cheat, they do whatever. Unconditional love does not mean that I trust them. Trust has to be re-won, re-earned. Trust is always earned. Love is unconditional. You'll never take the person at work who embezzled from your company and put them in charge of the books again, at least not until they win trust back. So again, we have to understand love and what that is here. And you know, the way that, the way that it's, it, you read it through here, again, it brings back what John talked about in chapter 1. This connection of light and, and love now comes together. It's all evidence that we are walking in God, we're walking in the light as he's in the light, the light of the world, and therefore we love. Obedience, that's one of our tests. Love. But there's another one that John does at the end of the passage I want us to look at this morning, and that has to do with our affections. Look at verse 15. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So another test of our faith is the focus of our affections. Are they changing as we grow in Christ? Do we find ourselves more and more uh, uh, attached to God and his things than we do to the things of the world? Now listen, there's a balance here, isn't there? Um, Everything that God has created, Paul tells Timothy, is for our enjoyment. It is for good. So there's nothing wrong with those things. Anything that God has blessed you with. 
but do you put an inordinate amount of affection on those things? Are they the things that give you joy? Are they the things that give you a sense of security? This is what I think he's warning against. So after we come to faith in Christ, we begin to grow in him, our affections should change. Now, when you first come to faith in Christ, that's all you've known. It's no surprise that you're attached to the world. And, and by the way, by the word world that he's using here, this is speaking of the world in rebellion against God. It's a world system. It's the world's values, the world's pleasures, the world's speculations, the world's philosophies. That's what John is referring to. He writes about it oftentimes. Let me give you some examples. In 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In John 15, in the upper room, Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In his prayer, recorded in John 17, to his Father in heaven, he says this, I have given them, speaking of the disciples, I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so this whole idea of the world system and its way of thinking and acting and philosophies, all of that, John says, is in opposition to God. It stands against God. So as we are growing in Christ, we want to be less and less attached to those things, more and more attached to God and to his things. How do we do that? What are, some, what are some ways that I can become less attached to the world and the world system and more attached? Let me just, I just put a list together. Let me run through some of them. One is gratitude. It's having a grateful heart for all that you have and all that you are. And along with that comes thankfulness. Thank God for what you have. Enjoy what you have. And that comes to contentment. A contentment in the scriptures is simply a healthy acceptance of what one has and what one is and what one does. So find that sense of contentment in Christ. Uh, it's also setting your mind on the things above, not on the things below. You know, there's an old cliche that, that, that warns us not to be so heavenly minded. We're of no earthly good. May I suggest that isn't probably our biggest problem? It's probably being so earthly minded we're of little heavenly good. So think often on the wonderful things. You're here just a short time. I know it feels like a long time, but we're really not, our lifespan is so short compared to all of eternity. Here's another one. Learn to value the things God values. You know, there are only two things that the scripture says God is going to take off this earth. Only two things that are going to survive the end times. One is his word that he promises abides forever, and the other is the souls of men and women. That's the only thing that's going to survive. There'll be a new heaven. There'll be a new earth. Here's another one. And here you have just done amazing uh, through this campaign we had is cultivate a spirit of giving. You know, there's nothing like a loose hand holding what God puts into you, you know, for you to manage. We're, we're stewards of all that he's given us. And boy, what a different way of thinking about things if we realize, as scripture teaches, that everything God owns, everything we have, he owns. And he gives it to us to use. So you see, when I give to him, I'm really not taking from mine and giving to him. I'm just giving it back to him, who owns it all anyway. 
What a different perspective. And then grow in your understanding of your position and identity of Christ. The more and more we understand who we are in Christ, the more and more leads me to want to walk with him, to obey him, to follow him, to do what he's asked me to do. Three tests, three indicators that you really belong to God, that you're his child, that you're in the faith, and this is a part of your growing experience. Number one is obedience. There's a growing desire to obey. Uh, There's a growing life that is characterized more and more to walk as Jesus walked. And then love. It's an increasing willingness to, to, to act toward other people in a loving way and affection. A growing attachment to Jesus, to kingdom things, and less of an attachment to this life. Enjoy what God gives you. Just hold it with a loose hand. Those things. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that you don't leave us clueless on how we ought to live our lives once we've come into a relationship with you. And thank you for this little letter in the New Testament of 1 John that we see the kind of lives that you expect us to live. And I know it's a growing thing in us, Lord, that we see it over time, but there needs to be that willingness to obey, a willingness to act in a loving way toward others, a a willingness to be less attached to this world and more attached to the next. Lord, may these things become more and more true in our lives as we grow in Christ. And so for his sake and in his name, I pray these things. Amen.